Let me say to you, starting next Wednesday night, we've got a couple of new things coming for you. We've got a new series. We're going to uh, be talking with you uh, about a series entitled At Home With Your Bible, How You Can Know the Bible That Has Changed Your World. And we'll be covering different books of the Old Testament uh, in that way. We'll cover Genesis and we'll cover Exodus all in one message. Now, there'll be some of them I'll combine because I'm either, I've either preached through them or I'm going to. And so um, we'll uh, save the majority of those particular books for Sunday morning. But uh, we'll start that next Wednesday night. And then we will have a full band back with us on Wednesday night. And uh, we're excited about uh, doing that, okay? Now, the uh, Wednesday night coming, uh, a week from tonight, Dr. Sims is going to lead our study. He's going to do an introduction to the Old Testament. And the following week, we'll begin looking at different books of the Bible. So, hey, get everybody you can here. They will really, really appreciate hearing Dr. Sims. And I've got to say to you, after his uh, long convalescence with his knee, he is roaring and ready to go. You may not get out of here till midnight that night, all right? He's been studying six weeks on this material. He is thrilled to get up here and throw down. So you'll want to be here for that. And then it's back to meat and potatoes with me, okay? And so we'll do that uh, starting on the 12th with a full band starting this next uh, Wednesday night. So do all you can to get your Sunday school classes, friends, distant relatives, third cousins here uh, for that uh, study, all right? It's going to be good, and I'm excited about doing that. You may wonder, how in the world can you cover a whole book of the Bible uh, in an evening? You've got, you know, you take about 25 minutes on Wednesday nights. You would be amazed at how highly structured and sermonic uh, the books of the Old Testament are. Now, that's a new $400 college word, sermonic. Look at your neighbor and say, sermonic. You have got an education tonight. Sermonic. Now, sermonic, that's a good question. Sermonic means it's sermon-like. Each of the books of the Bible are really sermons, and they will preach. If you just follow the outline of the book of the Bible, uh, you will have a, a tremendous message to deliver. And that's the marvelous thing about expository preaching. You don't... You don't um, you don't create sermons, you find them. You don't create sermons, you receive them and just follow the books of the Bible. Now, tonight, I'm not going to do that, okay? And I didn't do that with the series on Jabez. Uh, what I did is I took a phrase out of Jabez, First uh, Chronicles 4, 9, and 10, and I didn't go deep. I went wide from Genesis to Revelation. And we had those sermons uh, on Sunday mornings where you could open anywhere in the Bible and we'd catch up to you eventually, okay? That's going to be some of it tonight with the Gospels. And I want to invite your attention to Luke 11.1. 1. Tonight I want to talk about with Christ in the school of prayer. We're going to enroll this evening in night class, in night school with Jesus in the school of prayer. And I want to address your attention to Luke chapter 11 and verse number uh, 1. As you're turning there... Um, You'll need to look at several passages in Matthew and Mark on that, and they are in your notes this evening. If you didn't get a copy, lift your hand, and Jonathan will make sure that you've got some. But there are 50 texts, 50 paragraphs in the Gospels uh, about Jesus and prayer, and 17 of these are lengthy. Uh, total, there are 175 passages in the Gospels alone on Jesus and prayer. One of those is Luke 11, 1, that Dr. Stanley makes much of in his book, Handle with Prayer. 
It came to pass in Luke 11.1. 1. Now it came to pass as Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he ceased, that one of the disciples asked him, uh, said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Dr. Stanley makes much of this in saying that the disciples never taught Jesus or ne- never asked Jesus to teach them how to preach uh, or anything else. The one thing they wanted Jesus and requested of Jesus to teach them was how to pray. And uh, Dr. Stanley makes the point. He says, you will never do anything better than you pray. Prayer will be the very best thing that you and I do. And speaking to ministers, he would say, you'll never preach better than you pray. You'll never administer better than you pray. You'll never visit or counsel better than you pray. None of us will ever serve better than we pray. Prayer becomes a cement block ceiling on everything else. We never rise higher than our prayers. And so Dr. Stanley's been very intense down through the decades of teaching people to pray. Now, I took that seriously when I was younger, and I'm not the best prayer that there is. I'm not at all, but I've got to say to you, it is the burden of my heart, and I don't pray because I'm necessarily spiritual. I pray because I am desperate, and I am in desperate, desperate need, so I'm keenly aware of a sense of dependence, and every time I approach the pulpit, every time I approach a ministry need or situation, I am absolutely petrified because I'm aware of just how weak I am and how much help from heaven is necessary in everything I face. I pray out of desperation. I've got to. Uh, And I'm grateful then that the Lord taught us to pray. Now, there are four things then that Jesus did with prayer. One, he practiced prayer. He promoted prayer. He protected prayer, and he proposed prayer. One, he practiced prayer. He practiced prayer despite his nature. John 1, 1 through 3 says something about his nature. He is God, a very God, more connected to God uh, the Father than anyone else, more connected to God the Holy Spirit than anyone else as God the Son. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And literally in the Greek text, God was the Word. Now your English text says the Word was God, so that you don't think that all there is of God was in the Word, Jesus Uh, but there's still the Father and the Spirit. But literally the text is so emphatic on the deity of Jesus Christ that it says God was the Word. And uh, it says He was in the beginning with God. And it goes on to say, all things came into being through Him. Colossians 1.16 says, all things were made by Him and for Him. So when we talk about Jesus Christ in any capacity, we've got to begin with His deity and who Jesus is as God, and yet nevertheless, Jesus still prayed. Now, would you admit with me and would you agree with me that Jesus had some advantages over us when he was on the earth? Oh, I believe he did because he's God and perfect man, and yet nevertheless, Jesus found it necessary to pray to such an extent that there are 175 references to Jesus in prayer in four books of the Bible alone. And then Hebrews elaborates on his prayer life. In Hebrews 5.8, with many supplications and cries, he cried out to God. And so his prayer life got the attention of the author of Hebrews. So he had some advantages, but he prayed anyway. He prayed despite his divine nature, but then he prayed due to his need. Whenever Jesus became man in Bethlehem, he did not cease to be God. He did not set aside his deity. 
He was the same God he had always been except in human form. All that Jesus did, according to Philippians 2, 5, and 6, is that he emptied himself. Now, he didn't empty himself of his deity, but he emptied himself of the free exercise of the powers of deity. So he lived just like a man. He got hungry, and so he ate. He got sleepy, so he slept. Jesus, Jesus was vulnerable to death. That's how human Jesus was. He took on the full human experience except for sin and Adam's nature, and he prayed, and he prayed because he needed to pray. He intentionally put himself in that position of dependence upon God the Father. And so he prayed when he needed strength in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's looking towards the cross, and he prays, If it's possible, let this cup pass for me, yet nevertheless not my will, but thy will be done. He prayed at the cross while bleeding and dying. He took time out from dying for the sins of the world, and he looked at a thief and said, Today you shall be with me in paradise. But he prefaced that with, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's praying for lost people all the way to the very end. They are on his heart and mind, even in his dying moments. And with the last few breaths left in the cavity of his body, he cried out to God for lost people. And then he prayed in Mark 1.35. He's just had a powerful revival in Capernaum. He spent a whole day in uh, Capernaum in ministry, giving the devil fits and making misery in the kingdom of hell. Whether it's healing Peter's mother-in-law, it's cleansing a leper, whether it's casting out demons and previewing the apocalypse when he would return by casting them out. He had a powerful day of ministry at Capernaum. The crowds are following him, and he does something wise that every wise servant will do. And that is, after a victory, he prayed. He not only preceded his ministry with prayer, but a day of victorious ministry, he followed with prayer because great temptations come a day after victory. So in Mark 135, it says, early in the morning he rose up, went to a solitary place, and there he was praying. And in an, uh, an encounter with Peter early in the morning, I find rather humorous. Here's what happened. Peter comes to him. Now, Peter's just left this big old crowd. He's not only left a small business, he's left a big crowd back in Capernaum. And he comes up to Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 36, and says, um, paraphrasing a little bit here, but I think it's accurate. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, what are you doing praying? There's a crowd back here. And we need an offering. And the crowd can get bigger if you just come back. And so he interrupts his praying, and here's what Jesus says. He says, well, then let's go to the next towns and preach there. Euangelizo, let's evangelize there, for that is why I was sent. So Jesus did not even let a revival crowd and hope of a large offering interfere with his prayer life. So Jesus practiced prayer when he needed strength and then when he needed guidance. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, he did something that was referenced often when I was younger, when I listened to messages from pastors, and that is he prayed all night. He prayed all night. He got a hold of the Father and prayed all night because he's selecting his apostles those who would become the human embodiment of the New Testament and would write it and establish churches to begin with. And we are in their line today. And then he prayed when he needed power. Mark chapter 6, verse 41. He is um, 
uh, with the crowd, and uh, he's got 5,000 men at least that need to be fed. They're hungry men, and they've been with him all day long. And he receives two loaves and five, uh, t- excuse me, five loaves of discount bread and two pickled sardines. He prays and blesses them and feeds all of them. And he's got basketfuls left. He did that whenever he needed power. So here's my suggestion. Unless we are stronger and wiser than Christ, we may want to consider developing a prayer life just like Jesus. Okay? Well, I don't qualify for that. I need to pray like Jesus. So Jesus practiced prayer, but then Jesus promoted prayer. Now, one of my favorite quotes about prayer comes from a 70-year-old book or so from R.G. Lee. You really need to get a copy of this. This is one of those old convention press paperback books that is in a dusty corner of some church supply closet uh, back somewhere. I don't think we've got any around here, but if you grew up in another church someplace, your church library had these. This is really one of the best books on prayer by R.G. Lee, and he says this, Some look upon prayer as an argument, as a debate with God, and some seem to think answer to prayer comes when men can out-argue God. Some seem to think that prayer is overcoming God's unwillingness. But as God is not willing that any should perish, so God's not unwilling to listen and answer when we pray. If a lover is willing to see a lover, a mother is willing to feed her hungry or nur- feed her ch- hungry child or nurse her sick child. If a child's willing to eat when he's hungry, if a true friend is willing to help a friend, if a father's willing to protect his child from a mad dog, if a physician is willing to give medicine to a patient, how much more is God willing to hear us when we pray? Bishop Trench, who wrote a great book on New Testament synonyms, spoke great words when he said, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Prayer is laying hold of God's highest willingness. Your Father is willing to hear you, and boy, He loves to hear your voice. So Jesus promoted prayer with promises of power. Matthew chapter 17 and Mark um, 9, a father brings his son who falls to the ground, convulses, uh, and uh, is thrown into the fire by a demon. He brought that boy to the disciples. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and finds people gathered around disputing with each other, especially with the scribes and Pharisees, who could pick a fight with anybody, by the way. And um, uh, Jesus says, what's going on here? And the man comes up to Jesus, the father says, and says, my son is convulsing, a demon throws him into the fire, and I brought him to your disciples to heal him, but, and the saddest words in the Bible, but they could not. They could not. And Jesus said, bring him here to me. Some of the most hopeful words in the Bible. Can I tell you what that's meant to me through the years as a dad? Bring him here to me. He's a mess. He convulses. Somehow this boy's demon-possessed. He's got burn marks on his body. No one can do anything for him, not even the representatives and ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, bring him here to me. I want him. I want him. And God wants your kids as well. And so he brings him. The demon convulses him again. Jesus cast out the demon. The disciples come later to him and say, Lord, why could we not cast him out? And he said, because of your unbelief. For I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can tell a mountain to move from here to there, and it will be done for you. Well, Jesus is using some hyperbole. He doesn't want you changing the topography of the earth, but what he's saying is something about the power of your prayers when you connect it with faith. So Jesus promoted prayer with the promise of power. Then the assurance of patience. In the same story in Mark 9, 
Jesus says, anything is possible to him who believes. And the father says, you recall, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Now, we humans are a complex mixture of all sorts of things. Uh, The virtue of the image of God, and if we're saved, uh, what the Holy Spirit has brought to us. But we also doubt at the same time. Sometimes we believe to a point, and we don't go any further. And Jesus looks at that father and says, anything is possible to him who believes. And the father says, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And do you understand the father is being humble and transparent. Lord, I believe to a point, but I can't get past that. And Jesus heals the boy anyway. You know, our prayers don't get answered because we are great prayers. Our prayers get answered because God is gracious. And then there are opportunities for fullness. Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen, 13, If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So there's a promise of a new, full experience with the Holy Spirit. I mean, if the light is burning low, if the fire is dim, ladies and gentlemen, we can have a new day when we pray and seek God, and He'll fill us up with the Holy Spirit. Then there's comparisons of faithfulness. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. Now, this is going to sound just like the verse I just quoted from Luke 11, verse 13, Matthew 7, 11. But there's a difference. In Luke 11, uh, verse, uh, Luke 11, verse 13, Jesus promised that in prayer, the Father will give us the good gift of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 7, 11, it's more general, good gifts. And some think, well, you know, did Luke mishear him or did... Luke's eyewitnesses, earwitnesses mishear Jesus, and Matthew got it right, or did Matthew mishear him, and Luke got it right? Why are there differences between these two identical verses? Well, there's differences because Jesus was a traveling preacher. And when I was a traveling preacher, I preached the same sermons over and over again. And I'd say different things. Yeah, sure would. I mean, if it's good enough one time, it's good enough for a second time. And uh, I've got a sermon on John 3. I think I've probably preached a hundred times. But it's different every time I preach it. Depends on the crowd. Depends on how the Spirit leads me. Depends on um, uh, you know whatever's going on. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. So don't be too overly concerned about differences of similar stories or same stories in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or even John. Jesus was a traveling preacher. He preached the same sermons uh, a number of times, and he changed them up. Okay. So there's the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5 through 7, then there's the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6, which is similar, but it's not identical because Jesus delivered one on the mount and the other on the plain two different times. Um, well, in Matthew 7, 11, uh, he is uh, saying, Ask, it shall be given to you. Seek, you shall find. Knock, the door shall be opened to you. Which one among you, if your son comes and asks you for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for fish, you'll give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Well, how true. How true. Fathers who are responsible, and that's what fatherhood means, Fathers take responsibility for their children. They put the weight of their needs on their shoulders. They stress out about it to where they die five years earlier than the mom does, generally in the United States and around the world. And they take responsibility for their kids. By the way, I'm going to chase a rabbit here. That's why we men don't like men who don't take responsibility for their kids. It is hard, hard, hard to live with that. Really, really is. Now, we'll show him grace. 
and mercy and compassion for about 10 minutes, but you step up and you get responsible, all right? Well, whew, well, I could camp on that for a while. But anyway, Jesus compares these earthly fathers and uses some hyperbole then. He says to the disciples who are very responsible, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your father give good gifts to those who ask him? So uh, the disciples, Jesus says, compared to the father are evil, and even in that evil state, they take responsibility for their kids. How much more this heavenly father? So they're comparisons. Then they're examples of struggle. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Jesus fights the devil, and he previews the apocalypse. He defeats him. But he starts this all off in the wilderness with temptation in prayer, is what Jesus does. Now, here's what Ron Dunn said about this. He said, Satan has no defense against this weapon of prayer. He does not have an anti-prayer missile. For instance, the unbeliever has many defenses against our evangelistic efforts. He can refuse to attend church. And if he does occasionally show up, he can shift into neutral and count the cracks in the ceiling, or at least the lights. You can go to his home, but he doesn't have to let you in. Hand him a track on the street, he can throw it away. Get on TV, he can switch the channel. Call him on the phone, and he can hang up. But he cannot prevent the Lord Jesus from knocking at the door of his heart in response to our intercession and prayer. So Jesus promoted prayer, and Jesus practiced prayer. But then Jesus protected prayer. He protected the place and the practice of prayer. Now, in Mark chapter 11, verse number 15, we have an instance of Jesus protecting prayer in a rather dramatic fashion, which is really, again, a preview of the apocalypse. He uh, goes into uh, uh, the temple precinct uh, during Holy Week in Jerusalem, few days before he's crucified, and he surveys the temple and what's going on there. And you know what's going on there? Jews have come from all over the world for Passover. From at Pentecost, it was 15 different nations. It may have been that or more for Passover. And they are there to offer their offerings of lambs and doves and others to um, uh, God on, the, on Yom Kippur, those prescribed by Leviticus chapter 16. And the deal that they'd worked out with these pilgrims from, say, Rome and Antioch and Damascus and other places is that they found it difficult to carry their sacrifices, those hundreds and hundreds of miles. It was difficult to transport, you know, sacrifices that far. And if you boarded a ship and sailed to the Mediterranean, the ship fare, uh, transporting that cargo could be expensive. And they were already spending money, taking time off work, to come to Jerusalem for um, uh, Passover. And so here they come. They're coming to Jerusalem for Passover. And they can't, it's not convenient for them to bring their animals. And uh, they um, uh, come, and in order to have a sacrifice, what they do is uh, the Jews have set up uh, a sacrifice, uh, a um, business, and they placed it in the court of the Gentiles in the temple. And they are selling sacrifices for those who travel so far. The problem is, is that the prices are very high for defective sacrifices. And this is what Jesus finds in the temple in one of the courts. And it's not just any court. It's the court of the Gentiles. 
the only place in the temple where Gentiles are permitted to enter and call on God in worship at the temple. And so he finds these scandalous sacrifices sold at exorbitant prices there. Well, he comes in and he surveys that. He turns around and heads back to Bethany. And overnight, he makes a whip. He comes into the temple the very next day and he begins to flip over tables and he begins to drive these folks out of the temple. And here's what he says in Mark chapter 11, verse 17. Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. So Jesus was real intent about protecting the place of prayer, especially as it related to missions and the Gentile mission. But then he protected the practice of prayer. In Mark chapter 6, he sent his disciples across the Sea of Galilee, uh, across the sea, while he stayed on the shore and prayed. So he was willing to depart from his disciples for a while in order to pray. And he got several hours in to pray. The final thing Jesus did is that Jesus proposed prayer. Ian Bounds stated, What the church needs today is not more or better machinery, not new organizations or more and new methods, but people whom the Holy Spirit can use. People of prayer, people mighty in prayer. The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but people. He does not come upon machinery, but people. He does not anoint plans, but people, people of prayer. And there are at least three circumstances under which Jesus uh, proposed prayer. Number one, when relationships are tense. That's Matthew 7. You know that passage, Ask it shall be given, seek it shall find, knock the door shall be opened to you. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? That is a significant prayer passage in the Gospels. But that's just the middle of that passage. That passage has bookends. Matthew 7.1 and Matthew 7.12. And what both of those verses have in common is that they are both about relationships. Do you remember Matthew 7.1? Josh McDowell said that that verse had replaced John 3.16 as the most quoted verse in the United States. Judge not, lest you be judged. I think it's misunderstood in our day, but in the context and the meaning the Lord intended, that's excellent. Don't criticize, or you're going to get criticized. And the way, the standard you use to measure others, whether they're worthy of criticize or praise, that's going to come right back on you, so be careful. So he's talking about relationships there and how we interact with the disappointments we have with one another. So judge not lest you be judged. But do you remember verse 12, Matthew 7, 12? You do, but you may not remember the address to that verse. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So verse 1 is about criticizing. Verse 12 is about reciprocation in relationships, reality. And that's really what Jesus is talking about in both texts. And in between these two bookends happens to be this encouragement to pray. Well, don't miss the connection there. Don't miss the connection. Jesus says when you're tempted to criticize, when you're tempted to judge, and you're you're vulnerable to folks returning it to you and reciprocating that to you, then pray. In other words, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Pray for others as you would have them pray for you. So when relationships are tense. But then, second, when Satan is entrenched. Again, back to the story with the father, with the demon-possessed boy, the disciples could not heal. 
in Mark chapter 9. Jesus said in Mark 9, 29, this kind of demon, this kind of entrenched demonic activity, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. And then he goes on in Matthew 9, 35 through 38. He said, pray when the labors are few. Do you know, God does not sit back and whine and complain about the condition of the world. He doesn't say, it's harder to do evangelism today than ever before. Not at all. In the context of a people who would eventually kill him, Jesus said, the harvest truly is plentiful. So what he's saying is, is that there are plenty of prospects out there who would give themselves to the gospel if we would simply share it with them. The harvest is plentiful. Last research I read, 11% of Americans would give their hearts and lives to Jesus now if somebody would tell them. That's about 33 million Americans would. Another 27% are close. That's 38% of Americans. That's almost 100 million Americans are really close to receiving Jesus as Savior because the Holy Spirit is doing an awesome work in the lost world. And people that don't witness don't believe that. People that do witness know it to be true. And so Jesus is saying here, the harvest is not the problem. The lost people are not the problem when it comes to evangelism and the salvation experience because the harvest truly is plentiful. You know what the problem is? It's the laborers who are few. I mean, they're too comfortable back at the farmhouse. They're too comfortable in the barn or unskilled or unmotivated or perhaps apathetic. So Jesus said this, pray ye the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth labors into his harvest field. So whenever there is a lack of evangelism in a needy, receptive world, pray that God would send forth labors into his harvest field. The Greek word there is ekbalo, and it means to throw them out. It's a violent word. It's a forceful word. Pray that God would take all the labors and just haul them out into the world. I remember back a number of years ago when we were talking about our great commissionary vision, I would proposed a motto that we might be able to repeat, and I never pushed it and really dropped it after a while for a variety of reasons. But you might remember one particular Sunday when I said what we need to do is bring them in, build them up, and then send them out. That needs to be what we do as Beach Haven. Bring them in, build them up, send them out. So we win people to Christ, we build them as disciples, and then we send them into some form of service that makes a difference in the lives of people. Bring them in, build them up, send them out. Say it with me. Bring them in, build them up, send them out. One more time. Bring them in, build them up, send them out. Well, around the dinner table around that time, I was talking to the children and I asked them to remind me of that motto. Not that I'd forgotten it, but I wanted to see what they knew. And I remember Luke. Luke. I said, Luke, what, what's, what's that motto? He said, uh, now he's nine years old, okay? Uh, bring them in, teach the word, throw them out. <laughs> well, that's what the word means. Throw them out. So whenever there's a lack of evangelism, pray that God would get determined and insistent and persecute us into obedience until we share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. And if you'll pray that way, God's going to hear because the Lord told us to pray that way. Now, the, the final quotation here at the bottom of page three. Often we think our problem, uh, often we think our problem represents merely symptoms of our real problem. 
We believe that what we have are relationship problems or devil problems or worker problems or stewardship and evangelism problems. But what we often have is a prayer problem. Solve the prayer problem and we'll go a long way to resolving its symptoms. Well, that's why I'm so glad to tell you and announce to you how encouraged I am by your commitment to prayer. Got 120 prayer partners that pray for my family and me every day. If you're one of those, we've got a luncheon for you February the 9th. Love for you to RSVP to Pam that you'll be there. And I'm um, going to have different members of my family, uh, if I can talk them into it, uh, share with you their prayer needs and their thanks. And uh, then we'll be giving you some direction about praying in 2024s. But then we asked uh, folks to commit themselves to our 24-7 prayer ministry and to select a day and hour when they would pray and then to um, uh, also uh, submit hymn possible requests. I don't know how many hymn possible requests came in, but at least 170 people signed up to pray an hour for one another. We were just asking for 168, and you surpassed it. You know what? You always do. You always do. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this great, mar- marvelous, magnanimous example of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus about prayer. Lord, you've warned us.